And again, good morning, everybody, and good morning to those of you who are joining us online. We're um, thankful that you're here uh, watching today as well. You know, as it turns out, lying takes serious thought. There was an article that appeared in the Chicago Tribune, a group of neuroscientists from Temple University came together and they were talking about the brain imaging that goes on and the pictures they get when they catch someone in a lie. And I thought this was very interesting that they can, they can see that the greatest amount of activity happens deep in the brain at the center of, listen to this, emotion and self-preservation. It says the lie gathers support from the memory banks in the left and right temporal lobes and makes a, a dash to the front where a decision is made to suppress what the brain knows to be true. Now, now I didn't realize that all that was going on whenever uh, I was about, I don't know, about 17, 18 years old. And I was working for a landscaper at the time. And Zeb, I just need to apologize to you ahead of time for this. But I was working for this landscaper and he said, Chad, I need you to go get some bushes. So I I go to the, uh, the nursery, and I go there to get some bushes. Well, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, I'd been in this job like two, three days, and I, I didn't know a healthy bush from a dead bush. So I go, and I grab some bushes, and I throw them in the truck, and I, grab, and I go back to the work site. And uh, Zeb was known to be a, a, a fairly um, enrageable man. <laughs> he could get angry. And he could let you have it. And I remember he looked in that truck bed and he saw those bushes and he got so mad. He started throwing things and he was yelling and screaming. And finally he looked at me and said, Chad, who picked out these bushes? And I, I put my hands on my hips. And I looked at those bushes and I, I shook my head I said, I don't know, Zeb, but we will find the guy that picked those bushes out, just threw them in the back of that truck. Now, why did I do that? Well, it's pretty simple. I didn't want all that rage centered right at me. I was looking to preserve myself. And the easiest way to do that in that moment, well, was just to simply lie about who it was that picked out those bushes. And maybe you've been there. When you know what's coming and the back of your neck starts feeling hot, and it's just like, oh, maybe I'll just uh, tell a, a non-truth and maybe I can get myself out of this. See, we tend towards self-preservation. But as this article suggested, and that what's going on in the mind is, is a lot of stress and very serious thought about trying to figure out, well, how am I going to suppress the truth? Now, this has been going on for a very, very long time. You can go clear back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, attempting to lie their way out of the sin that they had committed. And the truth is, we're just not made to do that. Physically, we weren't made to lie our, ways, lie our way out of things. We have this tendency towards self-preservation. But it stresses us out, and it's no way to live. As a matter of fact, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. He said, if you want life, you're going to have to deny yourselves to follow me. You're going to have to turn your back on this idea 
of self-preservation. So what I want to talk about this morning is, well, how do I deny myself daily? With so many chances to preserve myself and my way of life and my comfort that I so desperately want to hang on to, how do I deny myself? Now, I want to set up the passage we're about to read. Chronologically, we're going through the, uh, the end chapters of the book of Mark. We're actually past Palm Sunday. That was the day, again, that Christ came in, and they were laying down these palm branches. He was receiving all of this fanfare as he was making this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Now, that set the stage for the fear of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. So under a cover of darkness, that's when they decided to go and take Jesus and confront him. They, they stole him there out of the Garden of Gethsemane. We saw last week as he was praying, and now he's going to go through this near mock trial that's going to take place in the house of the high priest. The passage we're going to look at, we'll start at verse 53 of uh, Mark chapter 14. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 14, starting with verse 53. We'll read through verse 72. And they led Jesus to the high priest. And all the chief priests and the elders and scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming, warming himself at fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands. And in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You've heard this blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were the Nazarene, were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. You may be seated. 
We're walking alongside these final moments of the life of Christ, moving our way to next Sunday, the resurrection. But before we get there, we see this crisis that even one of the greatest disciples, Peter, the rock, is going to have. And we've adopted this theme as we're going through these passages. Looking back at World War II, before they were about to go into that war, the Britons issued these posters to curry up the confidence and encourage the confidence of the people of that land. And they adopted this theme to keep calm and carry on. You're going to need it. They thought the death tolls were going to be heavy, that the air raids uh, of the Germans were going to take a lot of lives. In a similar way, these disciples are going to have to keep calm, only adopt a little bit different stance to keep calm and to stay faithful. Their world is getting rocked. The one in whom they put all this trust and confidence appears that it appears that he's going to be taken away from them. You and I have to have a similar kind of faith and confidence. And this kind of faith that you and I need and walk with also requires a denial of self. And that's what I want to talk about. I want to go through it, the subject this way. We'll look at the characters we see in the narrative. And actually, we'll see two trials going on. First, we'll see the trial of Peter. Peter is going to do what comes naturally. He's going to choose himself and self-preservation. Although then we'll see Jesus who's going to do what doesn't come naturally. He's going to choose self-denial. This is actually the pathway to kingdom living now. It doesn't seem that way, but we'll talk about what that means. Then we'll talk about, well, how do we deny ourselves daily? Uh, most of us are not going to be put in front of a tribunal today. But you are going to face trials in a lot of different areas. So let's move through this passage this way. And I want to start with Peter. Um, we've got these two main characters. And Peter provides us with this, unfortunately, this bad example. He, like Christ, was on trial and it was not going to go well. Now remember, Peter's the one that said, Christ, they're never going to take you. I, I'm not going to let it happen. I'm going to stand up for you. I'm not going to let you be crucified. He'd already cut the ear off one of Christ's captors when they met him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And again, we've got this fear going on. Those chief priests and the leaders, they saw how much attention Christ was getting. And they knew that their activities had to be carried out in the dark. So under that blanket of darkness, they went, they took Christ. And Peter is kind of skulking along behind. As a matter of fact, we see it in verse 54. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. I don't think Peter knew what to do. And uh, so he's under this cover of darkness, and he gets approached by this servant girl. The, the guards are just kind of hanging out there. And after the confrontation, he lies. Second accusation, well, you were with him, and again, he lies. And we get to the third accusation, then he responds in verse 71. He began to curse. And this is a little different version than the one I used previously. 
Then he began to curse, and he swore with an oath, I do not know this man you are talking about. Now, the, the construction of that passage, it's hard to tell where the curse is actually directed. Some passages assume a pronoun that he cursed himself. However, it appears that he might be cursing God. The one who he was just with hours, if even hours before, moments before. The one he was almost ready to kill for. The one that's now become captive while Peter's free. And what happens? After that disturbing event, he, he realizes what he does when he hears that rooster crow again and he just walks off and he weeps. What do you do when the heat is on? Now, the weeping of Peter is a good sign. You don't see this with Judas. You don't see the repentance with Judas. You see it with Peter. Peter is still the one upon whom Christ will build his church. But Peter had made a Christ up in his mind that didn't exist. From the text, it's clear that to preserve yourself is to deny Christ. But at the same time, it's what we tend to do. We deny Christ when we let evil go unchecked. It's when we lie to save ourselves, to look smarter, pretend we know more about something than we actually do. Why do we do that? Why do we do those things? See, we're trying to preserve this fragile identity that we try to maintain. That in order to feel good about ourselves, then that person needs to think this about me. I've got to meet certain standards so that certain people will like me. Then I can feel good about myself. To preserve that fragile identity, we'll lie, we'll abandon certain friends at times when it's not convenient or popular to stay beside them. Peter was comfortable with the Jesus that he had created in his mind, a strong military leader to use his power and he was going to elevate Peter to a position of authority. Well, now what? It looks like he's going to be killed. Jesus is facing death, and this is starting to make Peter doubt. And this was a Jesus that he, at the moment, was not willing to deny himself for. So we had this example of Peter. He's doing what comes naturally. He's trying to preserve himself. And then we've got the example of Christ, and that means self-denial means self-denial but that also means kingdom living now so let's get into this example of christ he's been brought into this this midnight courtroom it's made up of the ruling class of jews it's the middle of the night and that speaks of the urgency with which they want to do away with this man you've got the priests there the elders there this is uh a, the work of the sanhedrin remember they were under roman occupation at the time so they're even working under another layer of Roman authority. And Christ is prepared to uh, deny both out of love for his father. They were scared of that fanfare with his triumphant entry. Now they're throwing out false charges and accusations. Finally, the high priest starts his inquisition at verse 60. He stood up in the middle and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? Question one. 
What is it that these men testify against you? Question two. Jesus remained silent, made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, question three, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. <clears throat> and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Three questions. Interestingly, just like Peter, like I said, there's two trials going on here. And this author of Mark has cleverly intertwined the two so you will see a contrast between how these two men are going to respond. Jesus knows exactly what his answers are going to bring. It's going to bring his execution. Jesus made it unmistakable who he claimed to be. He said, I am the Messiah, that is the anointed one. The God that they had been waiting for. He said, I'm the son of God. But then he goes further. He said, seated at the right hand of power, that is to say, right by God the Father himself. And he says, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, this is interesting. He's saying, I'm coming back. I'm going to be transported to earth in the same manner that God has moved and been transported before. I'm coming back, and I will judge you who are now judging me. It's not going to happen in their lifetime. They won't see him coming with the clouds of heaven in their lifetime. But he says, I am coming back, and I am going to come back, and I'm going to judge you. See, he stood firmly facing all these trials. He never wavered. And this is the example for us to deny ourselves without a sense of self-preservation. And by the way, if you have an outline, one correction, it should say on that second point, Christians must deny themselves uh, without concern for self-preservation or comfort. Without is the key there. That's important. <clears throat> now, as hard as this sounds, here's the irony. That this very difficult road that you and I are called to be on is the absolute pathway to peace and joy. See, Christ is coming in with a new program. And he's saying, look, you humans, you're all doing this wrong. You are a slave to yourselves, only you can't see it. <clears throat> and the only way you're going to get what you really want is through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But if you want to be my disciple, you've got to deny yourselves. That's how you'll find what you're looking for. He said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. But doing it your own way, by your own will, is going to take you away from what you really want. If you want to know the peace and joy of my kingdom, your will and your ways of self-preservation are not going to get you there. It's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Jesus is explaining his kingdom through parables. And in Matthew 13, 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field that a person found and hid. Then because of joy, he went and sold all that he had bought that, all that he had and bought that field. Now, this guy's not a fool that's doing this. He gets it. That if he wants this kingdom, everything he has is just getting in the way. There's something, there's a, there's a Christian, he's actually a Christian psychologist named Larry Crabb, wrote about this joy and this self-denial that it requires. He said that our Lord made it very clear that if we're going to experience the deep joy of living, the passion, the kind of life so few people experience, we're going to have to do two things. 
He said, one, we're going to have to face our disappointments and pain. The route to joy walks through a deep valley sometimes. We're going to have to experience deep pain in our hearts as we experience pain and learn no one can touch it but him. We learn dependence in the meaningful sense of the word. Then he goes on to say, as we give up our commitment to self-protection, we move toward other people. Not for the purpose of protecting ourselves, but of giving ourselves. The result of that kind of life could be the quiet development of joy. Joy is available. There really is more to life than most of us know, and I find those words encouraging to my soul. You know, as painful a night as Peter had, it was also a necessary part of his development. He'll still be the guy that gets crucified upside down out of his devotion for Christ. He also came to repentance, and he also experienced forgiveness. It was his time of doubt, but that forgiveness is available to us as well. And then the question comes to us. Will we deny ourselves when the occasion arises? And it will come. And it can happen in so many ways. Obviously, we should always be looking for a chance to share the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ with someone. That he died to pay for our sins. You don't know how somebody's going to respond to that. You could be ostracized for that. You could be marginalized for that. There's always risk when sharing the gospel with an unbeliever. There's no greater risk, but it is a risk. But then there's also these times in our daily lives where we are going to have to choose between self-protection and self-preservation or self-denial and making a move towards God. And I want to identify five areas in which this happens. First of all, marriage. Self-denial happens in marriage by seeking oneness. Now, oneness does not mean sameness. But oneness means you've got two people in a marriage working towards a common mission and goal. It's actually uh, it's, um, best explained in the Trinity where you've got three persons. One God. This is one of the best mysteries to describe the mystery that happens in the union of marriage when God brings two people together to become one flesh. Someone denies themselves at times. Shouldn't be one person all the time. But you also see Christ denying himself to the will of the Father. So I want to mention four barriers to this oneness. And if you've been through the marriage class, this is going to be a review for you. But four barriers, this often happens in marriages, to this kind of oneness I'm talking about. The first is withdrawal. Avoid withdrawal. This is when uh, there's an unwillingness to get into or stay in an, an important discussion, so you just sort of check out. You move away. That's a way of self-protection and self-preservation that is hurtful to a marriage. You may need to separate for a minute to cool down, but you've got to come back together again. Don't withdraw. And then secondly is escalation. This is also one of those barriers to oneness. It's when 
One person says, well, if you're going to take it here, guess what? I'm going to take it up to here. If you're going to call me this, I'm going to call you this. Don't do that. That gets you nowhere. And then second, thirdly, rather, avoid negative interpretations. This is when you know why they did such and such. No, he's walking up with flowers. What did he screw up this time? That's negative interpretation. Don't try to mind read with your spouse. Assume the best. It may be the sixth time they screwed up and brought flowers, but give them a chance. And then finally, invalidation. Avoid invalidation. Uh, this is when um, one partner puts down the other. Says you shouldn't feel this way. You shouldn't fill in the blank. And invalid, it's actually a form of contempt. Now, why do you do these things? Or why do we do these things? I'll include myself in this. Well, it's a form of self-protection. But it's not good for relationships. It's not good for marriages. Remember, in regard to this last one, this invalidation, you know, feelings are always real, even if you may disagree with how the person got there. They're still real. So self-denial in marriage, it can be very subtle. So look for these indicators that you're being selfish or, or self-preserving. And then let's move on to this next arena, that's parenting. So how can we practice self-denial in parenting. Well, two things here. Uh, one, if you're finding worth and value through your kids' accomplishments or through their good behavior or whatever it may be, you're going to put undue pressure on them. If you're finding an identity in that, you're going to raise up an intolerable demand of performance standards. And then secondly, you've got to teach them how to have a relationship with God. And that means finding an identity not in them, but finding your worth and value in God himself. And then that teaches them where to find their identity. And then that teaches them how they can relate to God rightly. So teach them about that relationship. And maybe that means taking a moment and having a short devotion at the end of a meal. You know, we, those little our daily breads can be great devotions at the end of mealtime. You can get the app on your phone. As a matter of fact, we've got our daily breads out in the foyer. And then third is friendship. Friendship. How do you live out self-denial in friendships? Well, it's not, it's not by being either controlled by someone or trying to control somebody else. It's not about you trying to meet their every expectation or vice versa. But it is about being yourself. And again, why would you not be yourself in a friendship? See, we're getting back to that self-preservation. You, you feel like you've got to put a false person out there to be liked or accepted. And that's not how a friendship's going to work. It's about removing that mask. And if they're a friend, they're also going to uh, put up with your faults that we all have. They probably know your insecurities better than you do. And it's also about investing in someone else, loving someone more than yourself, seeking their best and highest good, sometimes even at the expense of your own. There's uh, something that Kenneth Boa said, and it's in his book called Conform to His Image, about friendship. He said the highest level of friendship includes the dynamic of covenant and commitment 
In this covenant relationship, two people agree to walk together for life and trust and loyalty. It's about celebrating uh, the, the challenges you and your friend have been through, the, uh, the breakups and the, and the comebacks and the reconciliations. So be yourself, invest in someone, and then what about work? What does self-denial look like in your job through the week? Two things. First, it's about pursuing excellence. The Bible's clear. Don't be slothful. Work hard. Do it to the best of your ability, but then make sure that you don't make it a priority that God does not want you to make it. One of the best pieces of advice the seminary professor gave me was if you're a B student and you're trying to make A's, it's as bad as an A student making B's. Because you're sacrificing something you ought not to be. Oftentimes, it's, it's your family or your relationships. Again, in that book from Kenneth Boa, he said there should be a rhythm between work and leisure in our lives so that we can enjoy periods of refreshment, renewal, and restoration, and relationships. Work and rest are equally legitimate in God's economy, but most of us have a tendency to overvalue work. So give it the right priority, pursue excellence. And then finally, in regard to society, keep the gospel first. Keep the gospel first. When we look at this world around us, we should have an attitude like those in the early church. Yes, there are needs to be met. We need to meet the needs of the poor. They, they saw that the church should carry out traditional works of mercy, like clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, visiting the sick. Yes, the Christian should be involved in all these things. But the problem comes in when we pursue those things to the absence of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, that's where churches have gotten it wrong in so many cases. <clears throat> C.S. Lewis saw this coming a long time ago. And he said this, this was in his book, Screwtape Letters. It's one senior demon coaching a younger demon on how to go about tempting someone. He has an interesting way of suggesting how to use social justice to do that. He said the thing to do is get a man at first to value social justice as, the, as a thing which God demands, and then work him on the stage at which he values Christianity because it may produce social justice. Listen, social justice is a product of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it always starts with the gospel. Letting people know, yes, you are a sinner. Yes, you need Christ. And yes, loving them, showing them the love of Christ, because they're seeing what the gospel is producing in you to love them well. So keep that in mind. Keep the gospel first. It's very easy for us to try to promote ourselves by doing, quote-unquote, good deeds. Always take it back to the gospel. Now, in closing... Um, I want to sum it up this way. Uh, find joy through daily self-denial, putting Christ before comfort. Find joy through daily self-denial, putting Christ before comfort. And one quote to end with, this is from G.K. Chesterton. I can say that I never knew what joy was like until I gave up pursuing happiness or cared to live until I chose to die for these two discoveries I'm beholden to Jesus. 
I'm going to pray, and then we're actually going to close uh, with a hymn. Sam's going to come up and lead us in that. But while Sam's coming up, I'm going to say a short word of prayer, and then we'll sing and, and be dismissed. Almighty God, I thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the example of self-denial. And I pray that we would pursue that and not self-preservation. Lord, show us where we are seeking comfort over you. And help us to put this truth into action. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.